Welcome to Confessions of a Closet Romantic, a podcast where I gush and go on and on about my favorite romantic TV shows, books, and movies without embarrassment or shame, mostly. This is Poppy, and in this episode, it's a slow burn take two, Bridgerton, Sanditon, and Bright Star. Today, it's all about the slow burn. In pretty costumes, of course. I mean, bring on the depth, the delayed gratification, the drama, the longing, the smoldering, the moody lighting, the drab costumes except for the highlighted main characters. Give me that subdued emotion set against rooms painted dark light-eating colors. I want to hear the Vitamin String Quartet transform every pop song I've ever loved into sweet melancholy. Spring is an odd time to be wallowing in this stuff, but it's the mood that has most intrigued me lately. If you have listened for a while, you know I'm a sucker for a costume drama, and I have watched some doozies recently. The inspiration for this episode was the debut of Bridgerton Season 2, which I covered last year along with Sanditon in an episode called The New Ton. Well, it's time to revisit because each show now has a Season 2. You can binge all of Bridgerton Seasons 1 and 2 right now on Netflix, but Sanditon Season 2 is still being broadcast on PBS, at least here in the U.S. If you're in the U.K., I think you've already seen the whole thing. Bridgerton was a massive hit last year, so it was guaranteed it would come back. But Sanditon Season 2, I think, can be partially credited to irate fans, raise his hand, who wouldn't stop banging on about that terrible season one cliffhanger. I mean, Sanditon season one was so wonderful otherwise, so that ending with no plans at that time to bring it back was a slap in the face. Now we have to see if Charlotte gets that happy ever after, but safe to say, while it might be the slowest of slow burns, it's bound to happen because if PBS has learned anything, it's respect your romantic tropes. That's why we show up in the first place. But I recently binged all of Bridgerton season two and oh, whoa, wow. Okay, how do you feel about a moody story full of smoldering glances, little taps of fingertips and delayed gratification? How do you feel about characters bound tight by familial and societal expectations And in Bridgerton's case, gorgeously diverse cast, scattered like jewels in every frame, dressed in sumptuous gowns, perfectly juxtaposed with the men in their gorgeous, sharp blue-black coats. If the answer is yes, please, then you will thoroughly enjoy both of these shows' software seasons. Both of these series now beg the question, Can such independent, intelligent, strong-willed main characters, Charlotte and Sanditon and Anthony Bridgerton, with such deep streaks of responsibility and senses of duty, ever get a happy ending? 
find that one person who can satisfy their desires and understand them? I have been watching you all week. I, I told myself I would support your choice, but I must admit I am finding it quite difficult to continue to stay silent. You've been anything but silent. This is your betrothal, Anthony. Your marriage to the woman that shall replace me as head of this household, might I add. You question Miss Edwina's suitability for the role. I question the example you are setting your siblings, marrying a woman for whom you clearly hold no great tenderness or love. Why will you not accept that the love match between you and father was the exception, not the rule? Because I wish for you two to know the joy of an exceptional marriage. You should be excited to wed Miss Edwina, but for all I have seen, you act as if you are approaching the gallows instead. If this is not what you want, you must say something now, Anthony, before... What I want is beside the point. I could never dishonor Miss Edwina by begging off now. You are right. A gentleman cannot take back his word. But a woman may. It happens all the time with young ladies, swept up in the dizziness of receiving a proposal before the reality of marriage becomes clear. If Miss Edwina were to call off the engagement, no one would find fault with her. And you would not be dishonouring her in the slightest, releasing her from the obligation before any vows were exchanged. She does not wish to end the engagement. But does she know your true feelings on the matter? My feelings are of no concern. What matters is my responsibility, which has always been to wed. My darling. If you have doubts, do not simply set them aside. This is the most important choice you will ever make. And it would break my heart to see you spend the rest of your life in regret. Edwina must marry an Englishman of nobility. Though let me assure you, Lady Danbury, I am not here for selfish reasons. After my father died, Mama and I did the best we could to raise Edwina, all so she would never know of our struggles. But our money ran low, we used the last for this very journey, the Sheffields have agreed to bestow a sizable dowry on my sister and to look after my mamma. But only if Edwina marries properly. And what about you? If I could marry for the sake of my family, I would. But I am not my mamma's daughter by birth, Edwina is. I've spent the last eight years raising my sister to walk in the right way, to talk in the right way, to play the pianoforte just so. Teaching her twice as much and watching her work twice as hard as anyone else. I even taught her how to make this pitiful excuse for tea the English so adore. I despise English tea. <laughs> but if it means my sister will not be left destitute, then I will smile and I will nod politely after each and every sip to be sure. The jury is still out on Sanditon, but that exquisite torture fills easily the first six episodes of the eight-episode season two of Bridgerton. With beautifully dressed tension, you can cut with a knife. Simone Ashley as Kate Sharma and Jonathan Bailey as Anthony Bridgerton are mwah. This sexy pair has the most incredible chemistry. It practically burns up the screen. 
They're both physically gorgeous people who look stunning, of course, in their costumes. But it's how they create those enemies-to-lovers fireworks every time they're in the same room. The script asks them to bottle up a, I'm thoroughly vexed even occupying the same island as you mood, which can't be easy to sustain and make irresistible over the arc of a whole series. So kudos to them for pulling this off, this deliciously sexy, will they, won't they tension over the majority of the season. The filmmakers are practically edging the viewers. I mean, here's an example. While scenes like this are happening throughout the series, their cheeks are brushing and their noses are bumping and their lips are centimeters away as they breathe each other's breath and say those lines, just confirming that they still dislike each other. But there's something so strong and physical and sexy between them because we know differently. We know how this is going to end. And it's like, oh, touch already. Sometimes they're just lightly touching each other's fingertips or gently holding each other's hands. And it's so sexy and hot and combustible. Why are you so distressed? When will you leave? Immediately, once your sister is married? I presume so, yes. And you will not concern yourself with finding a match of your own? Why would that concern you? It seems to me you will find any excuse you can to keep me away from your sister. That is it, is it not? You simply do not like me. Of course I do not like you. Then tell me why. Have I done something to you? Why? Is it that you dislike me so? Because, because you vex me. And what is it do you think you do to me? What? What do I do to you? You. You hate me. I do. I hate you. I am a gentleman. And your heart is with my sister. And my heart is with your sister. Say you do not care for me. Tell me you feel nothing, and I will walk away. I feel. What I love most about the slow burn of Bridgerton season two is the reason for it is Kate's resolve to get her family situated first and her lack of worry about not being coupled up, very much like Charlotte of Sanditon. You may spare me the instruction, Lady Danbury. I know I am to be on my best behavior. You think me an unfeeling harridan. 
But perhaps it would surprise you to learn that I am hosting this dinner for your sake. Your sister's betrothal may be the end of certain hopes you harboured regarding the Viscount, but access to the Sheffield fortune would certainly be a fine reward, would it not? A life of independence is no mere consolation. Indeed, many would think it the better prize after passion cools and fate intervenes. Who else is a woman left with but herself? The storyline and plot of season two isn't as flashy and hot, sexy and frantic as the first season, which I also loved. But I especially loved in this season the subplot of blue-stocking Eloise Bridgerton making her awkward, awkward debut in society. I've given much consideration to what you said about Mr. Sharp and his degree of interest. No, I did not intend to think about that. You should put him out of your mind. <laughs> I know it is <clears throat> odd, but I'd assumed ours was merely an intellectual bond, a, fr- a friendship based in like-minded thought and rigorous conversation. But what if... What if you were right? What if he feels more? I never said. Uh, Do you want him to feel more? My feelings about his feelings do not matter if I do not know for a fact what it is he is feeling. Perhaps you've already gone farther than is wise. Have you not heard of all the trouble that once befell Lady Mary because she chose to marry beneath her station? No one speaks of marriage, Pen. I am speaking of clarity of thought. I simply would like to know. But why? I can accept certain mysteries. I may never know how men came to be considered leaders when women are clearly better suited. I may never understand why the modiste tortures her own clients with tight bodices and scratchy fabrics. I may never even know who is behind Lady Whistledown. And you can accept such a mystery? Of course not. Those are mysteries I may never solve. This one with Theo, Mr. Sharp, I can. But what good will it do? It is not as though you can act on it. I suppose if I know for sure, it will be a relief. It's the not knowing that makes it feel like torment. To turn over in your mind the events of of a mere conversation, to to look at all of the evidence and still not be sure. It is a pleasing, stimulating, thrilling kind of torment. Have you ever felt that way? I think her turn to have a whole season is coming up. She's a bit controversial, but I find her the vinegar that is the necessary leavening to all of that sweet talk of love and romance. The first season was focused on Daphne Bridgerton's search for love, but the second season is inspired by the book The Viscount Who Loved Me, and it stars the oldest Bridgerton sibling, Anthony, as he searches for a way to serve his family legacy, find the right person to marry, and yet be open to a passionate, life-changing love. Oh, Anthony, this is difficult even if you aren't landed gentry. Anthony! There were some lovely young ladies in attendance last night, were there not? Lady Delilah has beautiful manners, and I hear Miss Goodwin is very accomplished in her needlework. Perhaps you shall get to know them better soon. Lady Delilah can barely string a sentence together for nerves, and Miss Goodrum thought that Napoleon fights for the Spanish. And as for every other eager chit you pushed in my direction, I would happily never lay eyes on them again. Anthony... I'm looking for perfection, Mother, and you should be too. The woman I marry shall be the Viscountess Bridgerton, the lady of this household responsible for launching my sisters and bearing my children. Do you truly desire them to be raised by a woman who does not know how to so much as hold a map right side up? This is the duty I must fulfill. 
You will end up alone with such expectations. The parallel of Anthony and Kate's stories, how they both act based on duty to their families while ignoring their own needs and feelings, and also accidentally hurting people in the process, is a source of a lot of the drama and anguish in this season, and it's quite powerful. The emotion throughout this series built up so much for me that when I got to episode eight, I was in tears. Now that is a delicious slow burn. And while it's difficult to be patient through this slow burn, I will admit the liberal use of the 360 degree camera when they finally kiss. And let me say, this is not a quick peck on the lips like at the end of a Hallmark movie. These are gorgeously deep, searching, mostly stolen kisses. (gasps) And the one scene of them making love completely focused on her pleasure and her gaze was so hot and sexy and intimate, it nearly took the paint off my living room walls. Oh, the depth of passion and emotion in this season was just exquisite. Speaking of exquisite, the 19th century poet John Keats and his lover Fanny Braun in the film Bright Star are a bit more understated, but no less passionate. If you know anything about Keats, you know his life was cut tragically short. I visited his house in Hampstead, mostly because analyzing an ode to a Grecian urn in a college literature seminar is one of my favorite school memories. It was like, oh, this is what that poem means? Wow, this guy is a genius. His love affair with Fanny Braun is the stuff of drama and lush romance in the hands of writer-director Jane Campion. She was inspired by a biography of Keats to make Bright Star. It centers on the romance of a few years of John Keats and Fanny Braun, and nearly every frame looks like a painting. The heart of this movie is the performance of Abby Cornish as Fanny Braun. She is a quiet but confident artist, way ahead of her time for the 19th century, and a subtle flirt who's introduced to Keats and Hempstead in 1818 and decides he will be in her life. Come in! (laughs) You like jokes, Mr. Keats. I like jokes. Mr. Brown, I warn you, does not like my jokes. Complains I care for nothing but fashion. Would you like biscuits? You've come to spy. Spy? How would you describe me? My character? I'm not the least interested in your character. (laughs) My jacket, then. My pantaloons. You need a new jacket. That's what I would say. Is that all? It should be a velvet. 
Blue velvet. Tell me, Miss Brunt, how can you be so sure? Well, all I wear, I've sewn and designed myself. I'm often told I'm clever to exception about design. I originated the pleats on my dress, which are charming and... Has she annoyed you sufficiently? She's done brilliant well with me. Men's room, out. Poet's got to do a bit of writing. My stitching has more merit and admirers than your two scribblings put together. <laughs> Goodbye, minxtress. And I can make money from it. He's deeply reserved, more of a loner, and she's quietly vivacious. Their personalities don't seem to mesh at first, but she's fascinated by him, and after buying a book of his poetry, she asks him to give her writing lessons. They become friends, and the attraction grows. We know how this trope goes. Keats is desperately poor. Everyone around them is discouraging the relationship, but their friendship deepens, and they eventually become lovers. The yearning and longing of this film, especially when you know that Keats' life ends pretty quickly, is almost unbearable. When I don't hear from him, it's as if I've died, as if the air is sucked out from my lungs and I'm left desolate. But when I receive a letter, I know our world is real. The one I care for. Pillowed upon my fair love's ripening breast. To feel forever its soft swell and fall. Awake forever in a sweet unrest. Still, still to hear her tender taken breath. new from which poem yours bright star would I was steadfast as thou art Not in lone splendour, hung aloft the night. Why do you say not? Not in lone splendour. You fear I'm not steadfast because I obliged Mama by going to a dance. Don't tease, Fanny. Why you not? I shall tell her I'm unwell. No, go. Go. Mm -mm. Go. This slow burn between them over a few years and this doomed love full of stops and starts still reflects a romance and a devotion that just makes this movie for me. The visual austerity, 
just telegraphs the sadness to come. But the romance and beauty they create together brings this film alive. Okay, we don't know how Sanditon is going to end. We're on episode four. This is the show, just to recap, based on the unfinished novel by Jane Austen about a fiercely independent, steadfast, courageous country gentleman's daughter named Charlotte Haywood. She's invited to a village called Sanditon, which new family friends, the Parkers, are trying to transform from a humble fishing village into a seaside resort. In the first series, Charlotte comes to stay with the Parkers, and instead of retiring into the sitting room with Needlepoint, she demonstrates enormous competence and intelligence. She falls in love with grumpy Sidney Parker in the first series, and the cliffhanger about will they end up together or not is resolved through voiceover in the first episode of the second series. I'll just spoil it a little bit. It doesn't end happily for them, but Charlotte is moving on seemingly happily. And you remain stubbornly unwed, I see. Yes, Lady Dunham. Oh, you better hurry up. You'll miss your chance. There are some women who choose not to marry at all. Oh, don't be absurd. An unmarried woman is a worthless pariah who brings shame and ruin upon her family. Regard the unfortunate Miss Hankins. No one chooses to be a spinster. She becomes a governess in the town. And we know she's a determined young woman. And no matter what she decides is good for her, that is what the series is going to serve up. She's just so dang sensible and modern. I lay awake all night. Since dancing with Captain Carter, I cannot eat or sleep for thinking of him. Then he must be a remarkable dancer since you exchanged all of five words. Perhaps you will call on me today. What should I wear? Why does it matter? If he doesn't love you for who you are, he's hardly worthy. So who are you dreaming of? Your strange new employer? Or should I dream of him? Or perhaps a certain colonel? Alison. Not Sydney. Still. There are many ways this show has modernized Austin especially because one of Charlotte's charges appears to be non-binary, and she completely supports them in how they prefer to be called, dress, and act, even to the point of arguing with the father, who seems to be developing into a potential love interest. The strict societal expectations of the 19th century, especially over sexual orientation, love, family, marriage, the role of women— give this plot an authentic tension that keeps me watching week after week, even though binging is where it's usually at for me. But slow burns in the plots, slow burns in the season, slow burns in the streaming, slow burns everywhere. And I absolutely love it. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support me by sharing this episode with a friend or buying me coffee. I'm developing some fun extras for those who support the show. Just visit confessionsofaclosetromantic.com and click the donate button at the top of the page. 
And you can also find show notes there with links to what I've been babbling about this episode. You can also find me on Twitter and occasionally on Instagram at poppy underscore confesses. Special hello to my listeners in Iran. I'm glad you're here. I'm so glad everybody's here. Until next time, may all of your slow burns turn into the relationships you desire.